Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm T. Cole Newton. I'm here, as always, with my inimitable co-host, the Shadow King of New Orleans, Steve Yamada. Say hey, Steve. Got it right that time. The Shadow King of New Orleans. <laughs> For the uh, hundred or so listeners we have on this podcast, uh, if I'm ever out and about and somebody calls me the Shadow King, either you're the guy from Vice who wrote about me that one time, or you listen to our <laughs> podcast, and thank you for either of those things. Uh, yeah, well... I listened to our podcast, but I did not read that article in Vice. <laughs> they, they don't have to be. It's a Venn diagram, right? <laughs> it's just, Left it's side, right story. side, center. I bet you have some hardcore followers that, that listen to every episode of this podcast and also read every article that you're ever mentioned in. <laughs> Those people are going to kill me one day. <laughs> uh, here's hoping not. Um, we are joined by a most excellent guest, a very good friend of mine. His name is John Pouchot. He is the chief of staff. For the city council person and mayor elect Latoya Cantrell has been for her entire tenure on the city council. We can talk a little bit what about no not not your entire tenure no oh no. shoot I, I am wrong already. Well, why don't you introduce yourself <laughs> yeah so I can uh, you know cool. I'll step back and say a little bit about just hi and this is who I am this is what I do. Great um, hey guys thank you all very much for having me. Um, uh, as Cole said my name is John Pusho I am a council member and mayor elect. Uh, Latoya Cantrell's chief of staff, although I guess I'm the chief of staff is for the council member part at this point. Um, I, I've had that role for about a year, year and a half. Um, and prior to that, I was her legislative director. So, uh, I've worked, uh, for the council member for, uh, what will be four years in February. Uh, excuse me, in April. Cool. Awesome. Um, so I, I, I kind of want to start this conversation a little bit from my side. Like, uh, Cole's got a background. Um, you, did Cole's you? Cole's got a background. He's got, he's got a background. <laughs> you know, we, we know all about Cole. Uh, he's, uh, I, I think growing up in the, uh, DC area, um, it seems most of the people I know from DC or have lived there, live there now, you know, they're, they're just politics is something that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just in the air. It was, it was a very part, much part of our normal life. You know, I went, uh, I, the, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta, I went to school with his son. We were on, we were on the same baseball team. It wasn't really a big deal. Uh, and that was, that, like I said, that was just life. Mm, you know, my, my right Did you study poli-sci in college? No, I studied uh, contemporary American history, though, which which incorporates a lot of poli-sci. Yeah, sure, absolutely. It's like a spectator sport in, in America. <laughs> and something with, like, D.C., it's it's not just that politics is important. It's it's an actual industry, right? Like, just mm. like if you live in Detroit, you probably know at least one person who was an auto worker. Well, Politics and government is is one of the largest employers of people in that area, so you will know people affiliated. With Very them. much so, and but I think there's a there's a there's a, a contrast to be struck, and people always assume it's like oh D.C. politics, politics, politics. There's a big difference between politics and government. Mm. Like my father worked for the government; he worked for the Department of Justice, uh, but he was not a politician, and he he refused any job offers from politicians because they're very they can be very fickle. Mm-hmm. You know that that mm-hmm. your job is only two to four years or yeah. or less if something happens and there's a scandal. I mean, anything could change in moment to moment in politics, whereas a government job is, is at least until very recently, was considered very stable, yeah, very safe, very predictable. Yep. And, and government, you know, 
politicians were people, you know, that you know, they were sort of like the celebrities of the world. But the people who worked in government were also janitors and bus drivers mm-hmm. and just all these run-of-the-mill normal people jobs. Mm-hmm. They just happened to be it. You know, FBI headquarters or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So uh, I love that delineation. Uh, for you, John, how did you get into politics slash government? I guess if that's like a difference and everything like that. What yeah. was the draw for you, and what's your background? Sure. So um, I'm from Baton Rouge originally, um, and I think there's probably a, a an inferior version of Cole's experience <laughs> um, for anybody who lives in the state capital. Um, I had, uh, parents who were interested in the news and interested in current events. And then, you know, you have the, the reality of government happening like right there on your front doorstep. So I think that was always, um, an aspect of it. I, um, I also, um, was very, uh, so I grew up in Catholic school and was very moved by concepts of like Catholic social justice, um, and very much still kind of informed my thinking and wanting to do good. Um, and, and then we, you know, also just, in my childhood, we had some really crazy races that happened um, that just kind of stick in your head. In particular, the Edwin Edwards versus David Duke race when I was six years old. It's it's weird that that's a thing you remember as a six year old. A gubernatorial race is not often you know a topic, uh, but you had a former Grand Dragon of a Ku Klux Klan who was running against a former federally indicted governor, and so <laughs> with bumper stickers that said you know vote for the crook, it's important, and so. There were, um, there was, you know, politics was always around and both the interest in it as something that was fun and the potential for public service as a way to do good for people were both things that really, you know, caught my attention at a very early age. I, um, I was a page in the state Senate when I was 14, 15 and, um, you know, was interested in student government and all those other kind of things. And then, uh, went, went to college out of state. Um, but was interested in, in public policy and the kind of interaction between government and, and private industries in relation to a whole host of things, but in particular affordable housing. Um, came back to, uh, Baton Rouge, uh, the summer before Katrina hit. I graduated in 2005, um, and started working for the, uh, Louisiana legislature's, um, the house's, um, health and welfare committee two weeks after Katrina hit. So, uh, it was quite a time to be working on those issues. Uh, but I was like drafting healthcare and social service legislation and it was a great learning experience. But so that really got me into it. Cool. Um, you was, know, at was there the same some sort of like the, uh, the New Orleans is in a lot of ways was sort of a, a social experiment mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that there was in the health legislation and uh, social service legislation, there was the same kind of active experimentation that was going on in, say, the uh, the educational world? Completely. Um, and the easiest example is University Medical Center, right? Um, the whole concept of what was going to happen with Charity Hospital, um, what uh, the, the, the nature of um, healthcare services were going to be in New Orleans were very much an open topic of conversation and, um, a transition to a different, um, type of healthcare model, um, became a topic very quickly, um, after the storm. All right. Uh, sorry to derail. So no. let's say you were doing that then. Oh, what, what, what do you think about the legacy of, uh, of that? I, I know that mm-hmm. I haven't seen Big Charity. Have you, yeah. You know, I, I haven't seen the documentary. I haven't but seen the documentary. The, the issues about sort of the, is healthcare as accessible or, or quality healthcare as accessible in New Orleans now as it was, uh, before the storm? What's the, what's the legacy of that transition away from charity and towards the University Medical Center as sort of the city center 
medical paradigm. Yeah, you know, it's, that's a fantastic conversation and, and question. And um, I guess, like like most, the, the answer is probably really complicated. It's 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 tough for me to um, give a, a broad brush um, answer because I know that there are a lot of people who um, who lost a lot in order for UMC to be created. Right? We had entire neighborhoods that were were removed and. You had people who were in jobs at, at at charity that had done a really great job for for years, and some of them were able to come back, and some of them not. And that transition was was really funky for for a lot of people. And there there's some specifics of that system, um, I think that were actually um, great, and there were some others that were really kind of problematic. I, I do think that there's a bit more of a focus now on primary care, um, which is which is a good thing. I think that's part of a national trend. So I don't know if that's specifically related to that changed to UMC, but, but, you know, you ha- because all of these other things were happening at the same time, right? So you have Medicaid expansion now. So there's a different means to access healthcare for people that didn't have it before. The nature of the way charity went was you, you had a, a relatively small amount of, of folks who, because they're, um, kids or their, or their moms or they're very, very sick, um, have access to Medicaid, right? But the average, you know, lower middle income person or single adult, male, right, would have no access to those services. So if you got sick and if something happened to you, you would go to charity and that care was provided to you according to a sliding scale of ability to pay where charity just got a straight up like chunk of money, right? So most of the time when you go and get healthcare services, you have health insurance, you go to the hospital and they bill a third party every single time, right? But the way charity worked was for a lot of services, they just had money to operate the hospital. So there wasn't a specific separate billing system, mm-hmm. which in some ways is a lot more efficient. The problem is that what you got money for or didn't get money for was somewhat related to a lot of inpatient-focused stuff and not nearly as much of the primary care that you would have wanted to right. provide people. So we were providing efficiently high-level care, and we weren't providing nearly enough of the preventative stuff. Yeah. And so that transition – and I'm sorry, I can easily nerd out on the healthcare <laughs> No, stuff. no, that's really interesting. Um, I'd love to have a future episode to just focused just on healthcare. Just focused on – you right? know, I think that's that's a great idea. You know, if you can keep people paying attention the whole time, they you know, they might learn some <laughs> interesting stuff. Oh, people pay attention when we talk. <laughs> just lost another five listeners. It's the, <laughs> it's the dulcet sounds of their voices, guys. I think that's what it is, right? It um, helps. It does. Uh, but yeah, so anyways, so yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And one of the things that I'm encouraged by is before, um, when the, the medical center was referred to as big charity, there was more stigma, I believe, with that facility than there is now. Hmm. Um, and the like long-term viability of UMC is very highly like tied to being able to get Medi- Medicare eligible patients, right? Who can go pretty much anywhere. And to get private patients and the current system gets more of those types of patients than uh, the previous system did. And one of the things I was really interested in was like once that hospital got set up, um, what was it actually going to be called? Because previously with the older hospital, they called it five or ten different things, but everybody called it big charity. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody called it charity hospital. Nobody calls UMC charity hospital anymore. And that's a very like ground level thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and. Unfortunately, the terminology matters so much for people and what they think about when they say something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's relevant to that. And on top of the fact it's big and pretty uh, are reasons <laughs> why, you know, different types of patient mixes go there um, that are a little bit different than the ones before. Well, it's so difficult to shift perception in New Orleans as well. People yeah. get so hung up on the tradition and like the way things 
uh, have been or the way things, uh, the way people think things should be, that it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to shift that around to something new. No, it's true. It's true. Coolio. So um, through that work and everything like that, is that how you ended up working with the city council? So, yeah, I, uh, I guess I'm on the front part of that story, but let me quick it up a little bit since I gave you guys that nice little 10-minute detour into healthcare policy. We asked for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so I, then I worked in the uh, Secretary of State's office as the Director of Voter Outreach. Um, Who was Secretary of State at the time? Jay Darden was Secretary of State at that time. So voter registration drives, talking to kids about the importance of voting, that kind of stuff. Um, I then went to law school in Philly and stayed up there for a while. Um, was working for a Medicaid consulting firm and then a, a Medicaid managed care company up there, but wanted to be in New Orleans, uh, my favorite city in the world. And uh, I lucked out and was able to get this job with uh, Councilmember Cantrell um, based off of previous legislative experience. So that's what got me back to the city and and got me involved in, in local politics. Cool. Excellent. So did you have any experience with... Baton Rouge, local Baton Rouge politics, or mostly state politics? I worked on a mayoral campaign there, okay. which awesome. was an interesting experience. Awesome. But, uh, what is your – it's got to be a hell of a transition mm-hmm. uh, between uh, Louisiana state politics, mm-hmm. Baton Rouge local politics, and then New Orleans politics. Could yeah. you speak a little bit to the extent of you know what that transition is like or what the differences might be? Sure. I mean, the, the biggest thing at the state level is you know I was really there and around – Granted, as a, as a staffer, so as an, in a non-political position, but I was there when you had that big shift into, um, a conservative, not conservative control, cause that had been probably in some ways happened in a long time, but a Republican dominated control of the legislature. That, mm-hmm. that happened right around the time I was there. You know, the, the idea of political party being relevant in state politics, um, was still relatively new because you had so many kind of old school Democrats who would have been Republicans anywhere else, mm-hmm. right? So that was one of those things that really kind of stuck with me in, in the nature of the partisanship in the legislature and how that affected stuff positively or negatively. I, I think from my end, mostly negatively, but I could be missing some stuff there. Um, <laughs> I don't think you are. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that was the, that was a thing. And then, you know, the the Baton Rouge is a little bit different than New Orleans. And so far as you have the city of Baton Rouge and then you have the parish of East Baton Rouge. And it's actually similar to a lot of other places where um, you have a like, city government that's kind of focused oftentimes, you know, majority mi- minority populations or at the very least majority democratic populations. Right. And then you have a county level of stuff that's often more conservative, whiter. And um, uh, there's a there's a battle between those two. Mm. And what had happened in, in Baton Rouge for years is you usually had a um, a white, somewhat moderate conservative candidate from the city. You would have a black candidate from the city and then you would have a rural candidate. And usually what would happen is the rural candidate and the black candidate would get the two largest populations of the votes. And then a lot of the folks who had voted for the white city candidate would then vote for the white rural candidate and that person would win. So, um, <laughs> Bobby, Bobby Simpson, um, is a, is a candidate. If you like look at the, the voting numbers, he was a, a guy that, that it won using kind of that that model, um, but that, some of that changed recently. And part of that, I think, is the the parish has gotten a little more diverse. Um, but it's a different setup than in New Orleans, where you just have the city, right? Mm-hmm. When uh, <clears throat> I learned when I first moved down here, I was uh, I in, in the company of the then mayor of Baton Rouge, and he was referred to as mayor president. Yep. And I asked why, and it's because he was simultaneously the mayor of the city of Baton Rouge and the president of the parish of East Baton Rouge. That's it. 
That's but it. That's a great title. It's a mayor it's a, president. It's a dope title. Will Will Latoya <laughs> technically be president of Orleans Parish as well? Will she be mayor president? Latoya Cantrell. Unfortunately, the charter dictates that he, she is only the the mayor and is and is not not the mayor president. So. Who's the? Is she all? Is there a separate? Parish government? No. For- so, so the reason that that, that, that stuff kind of works, I know. And <laughs> I'm really glad I get to nerd out about some of these like like issues related to local stuff. But because the entire parish is what's called incorporated, so mm. because the entire parish there's is no part unincorporated of the city, Orleans parish. Exactly. Yeah. That's also why our sheriff doesn't have, you know, the same type of powers and duties that um Je- the Jefferson Parish Sheriff has, insofar as like you know people who do what we would consider cop stuff, right? Um. Because sheriffs usually do that in unincorporated areas of parishes, but if your entire area is incorporated, that means that's all done by the the public uh, the police department. So, what is the role of the sheriff in Orleans Parish if they're not involved in sort of day to day law enforcement? The, sure. the jail is that the the jail is the biggest piece, okay. and and there's some other smaller pieces that um, I will likely forget off the top of my head. But the 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 management of the jail is the is the largest uh, aspect of it. There there's some other smaller things. The sheriff's office. Has deputies that do provide security in several, um, local governmental offices, um, like courthouses and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, there's some of the rehabilitative services that are kind of under the purview of the sheriff, but the biggest thing here is the jail. All right. So, uh, what, what were, let, let's talk a little bit about key legislative accomplishments. If you, you came back, <laughs> yeah. you you get the job working as the legislative director for a city council person. Yeah. And Ladoria was was a very active city council person. She was. Uh, she she's, was. she's not known for – she was known for getting things done. Yeah. And yeah. I think the one of the examples uh, – Lilia, my wife, was very involved in, in uh, volunteering for her campaign for mayor. And one of the examples that she cited – as a positive legislative accomplishment, and many people would probably agree, is the uh, the citywide smoking ban. Yeah, that was that was big. I was just about to say. There you go. <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, that is one of the things that I would cite. I was also a supporter of Latoya for mayor. Um, one of the things that I would cite as an example of we don't always agree on the issues, but mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. I yeah. I had a I, I have a bar. We're, we're recording mm-hmm. this podcast in my bar right now, twelve by eleven, Mid City, um, and we had a couple years before that gone smoke free. We sort mm-hmm. of transitioned in that direction, and then eventually we became a, a smoke free bar entirely. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, we were the only smoke free bar in Mid City, really. Um, and I think that gave us a bit of a point of differentiation, and like people would. That we had a lot of people that would come here because we were smoke free and that we were the only option for that. Mm-hmm. And I think one, that was one of the reasons I was against it. But also that's what, not every, I'm not a, a weird libertarian. I'm not a, a, a you're a cool libertarian. Cool libertarian. Is that a thing? <laughs> but I, I don't do think know. there's, there's really certain things know. that like there's, there's an element of, you know, like what can people complain about the nanny state is that we shouldn't let people, we shouldn't be legislating adults making decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that this is, this is my business. It's private property. Uh, people have a, can choose to come here or not come here. Yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I was against it. I was against the smoking ban. Yeah. Uh, and, but I can, but also, I mean, just from the other point of view, from a public health standpoint, it's just a no brainer. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. clearly going to have significant advantages. Uh, in the the health purview, what was uh, were you involved in crafting that legislation as her legislative director? I would imagine you had to have something. Yeah, like I drafted that. it. You did. And now when, it's so it fault. was you. It's, it's all on me. <laughs> now let me be specific when I say I drafted it. Um, a, a lot of that work is taking what other places had done. A, lo- a lot of uh, smoke free legislation looks very similar. 
Sure. Um, so taking things that have been done in other places and we, and we got a lot of really valuable input from people, um, at the health department. So the health department was already kind of working on updating our smoking laws to be more in line with the state legislation. Um, so they were already kind of looking at it. So that was a great resource. And then what's the, what was the state? Or what is the state policy on smoking? So the state policy is is that you can't smoke in restaurants, um, and then a couple of other smaller places. But there were some pieces of the New Orleans legislation that were so old they weren't even up to date with the state stuff. And so we we took a lot of the work that was being done on that, and not just made it relevant to the state stuff, but even even more restrictive. Um, so yeah, so you know there was some some help at the staff level. There was also help from, you know, legislative partners for organizations like the American Cancer Society and some of these other folks who, who work on smoke free issues, you know, all over the country. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's an issue. It's, it's still, it's still a, a thing that some folks are, um, you know, not really happy about, but I get more, more than anything, I get a lot of thank yous whenever I talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, the, the kind of nature of, of, you know, where that kind of, allowing people to do whatever they want type of situation and allowing private property to do whatever it wants type of situation occurs. And, and, you know, what is affected by that when you're talking about individual, you know, situations, smoke was always a, is one of those things that, especially because of secondhand smoke is a little bit different for me than, than other things, right? Like if, if I'm eating a hamburger, you're not going to get diabetes because I'm eating a hamburger. And, um, with smoking, it's a little different. Um, and, and granted, it's a situation where people could always leave, but it's you, you have other people who are setting the standards when it comes to what you do or what you don't do or, you know, what you're able to enjoy or not. And, and, and I've always thought that it's kind of problematic. Um, obviously there's the public health piece, which is, which is really big. And then when it comes to, you know, the, the, the private decision makers of, of uh, decisions of business owners in relation to what to do with their property, I'll be honest, just as a, as a black person, I'm a little sensitive to, to that mm-hmm. argument because it's been used for a lot of really gross stuff in this country. Um, now granted, there are lines, there are huge lines and you should still be able to have input because it's your business. It's your property. You should, you know, be able to, to do what you want to do for the most part, you know, right. in, in that place. I guess we've talked we about like that dress codes at a lot of bars in New Orleans mm-hmm. are clearly like, you know, racially motivated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, smoking bag. <laughs> I, I've come like three, like 180 and yeah, 360 mm-hmm. would be back in the same situation, right? Yeah, yeah. This bar's kind of come that way too. Not that people are smoking inside the bar, but we sell yeah. cigarettes here now. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, we oh. don't allow smoking anymore, but it's like yeah. now we're propagating smoke yeah. <laughs> one way or another. We have this beautiful patio for people to smoke on. So it's still not the secondhand smoke. Well, but. that's been one of the things, right? This, I, I think we've had an ex- expansion of patio culture and in, rooftops in, and rooftops yeah. in, in the city. Um, that it's tough because. New Orleans is hot, and when it's not hot, the skeeters are out, right? So right. it's it's tough sometimes to to figure that out. But I definitely see, feel like we have many more kind of you know outdoor areas, and and some of that's also created its own issues. Some places have problems with um, uh, noise complaints that they didn't have before because now folks are outside getting a mm-hmm. cigarette broken. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked to some musicians who will play to crowds that are a little smaller because folks are outside getting their their yeah. their smoke break, but. To be able to go to the maple leaf and breathe, it's like you get a third lung. Yeah. Um, 
when I, you're in that space, it was insane the first time I was in there without the smoke. I used to run a karaoke night, and uh, the smoking policy basically killed that karaoke night. This was after I had stopped hosting over there, mm-hmm. but um, because everybody was, it's kind of weird, everybody was singing karaoke, but they were also like chain smokers. Yeah. So yeah. they, uh, uh, it turned out the crowd would just go outside. Like, yeah. you know, everybody would hang outside and smoke, and then yeah. when they would come in, they'd come into an empty bar and sing a song. It was really kind of a sad dynamic. That is an but, interesting situation. Ah, it's, it's, <laughs> the, uh, the other thing, too, I, I think a big thing for, for my boss was just the nature of um like workers rights in relation to some of this stuff too right you're mm-hmm. you're in a somewhat limited situation for instance a uh, Harris is one of the largest employers in the city mm-hmm. right um smoking was allowed in the casino that was one of the biggest issues and fights in relation to that um ordinance and um it's it's difficult because you can say you can work somewhere else but if your your working options are limited then your working options are limited same thing with musicians right like you had musicians who they were playing over the course of two hours in this play, this smoke filled room. And, you know, a lot of the support that we got was from the musicians community in relation to that, to that ordinance. Hmm. I've, I've done some work with, uh, with Magna, the, uh, uh, music and cultural coalition of New Friends Orleans. Friends of the Friends show. Friends of the show. Yeah. <laughs> We've had Ethan come on and, uh, and Hannah. Um, and I know that Latoya was very specifically upset with them because they didn't take a, a specific stance because a lot of their constituency was very split on it. So they decided not to, but I think she really wanted them to come out swinging in favor of the smoking ban. And they sort of, I think again, like I was, they were sort of split between the clear, like the workers' rights and the public health elements, but also the, like a lot of their, their, a lot of the musicians were against it. They, they, they liked being able to smoke on stage or to have that freedom but it is i i think it, I, I was almost mo- most impressed with the, i mean again i'm not i'm not in favor of it but it was it was impressive that it passed uh and i think a big part of the reason i was so impressed that it passed was because of the casino because mm-hmm. the, the amount of water that the casino draws in this town i never thought that they would i i, I just always thought that they were going to carve out a niche for themselves they're like still, that they're still fighting it though aren't they are they and then they it like, seems like it's just they sued the city done. for loss in revenue. They were part of a lawsuit. There were some lawsuits, to get a but that stuff, exception or something like that. The lawsuit stuff is pretty much done. I yeah. think there was, you know, um, there were some definitely some legal battles that had to be fought. Yeah. Um, and then you know, there was a, an open question at the state level what they could have authority to do or not do in relation to some of that stuff. But for the most part, I think they moved past it because they want to have a relationship with the city. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you want a long term, mutually beneficial relationship, then fighting the city on a, on a big aspect of its policy isn't always a good idea. So, yeah. um, I think for the most part, we're in a, in, in a different place with them. Um, and we'll see how that goes, you know? Cool. Um, I guess that kind of leads into something that I always think about as well. Like from the perspective of like exploring legislation, drafting legislation as mm-hmm. well, and finding interest from, you know, the constituents as well. Yeah. Um, at to what point do you guys reach out to the service industry? Mm-hmm. Because it is a large, you know, sector of like our labor pool. A yeah. lot of the citizens here yeah. work there as well. So, um, how do you guys feel that you reach out to that community, our community rather, like yeah. when it comes down to it to like reach out to see, you know, our thoughts, like how this would affect us? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a little bit of a two way conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the reason that the, the smoke free legislation even came about was because of people talking to Latoya about the importance of this issue for them. Right. Um, and it was very much a people powered thing, right? Even before dr- legislation was drafted, they were, community meetings and there were rallies and there were other aspects and private conversations um, about how problematic this was for people. Right. Um, So 
I would say that a, a large part of the smoke free stuff was directly related to paying attention to what people were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, there were some folks on the other side who were saying different stuff, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah. And, and, and so when it comes to the kind of the direct kind of constituent communication, um, a lot of it's just listening to what people are saying. And, and there, there is a, a, a part of it that should be actively engaged in, um, you know, going out and getting people's opinions as well. But I can tell you that the biggest piece is when people talk to us about problems, Latoya is very solution oriented. The mayor elect is very solution oriented. Mm. And so what she's thinking about is how to solve for problems. Right. right? Um, I live by the uh, mantra, come to me with solutions. Don't come to me with yeah, problems. It's, no, that's, it's, how I, it's how it's I manage when I end up managing bars or restaurants. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a good way to think about it. And, and so when people come with, with problems and also potential solutions, it's always something she's, she's open to, to listening to. So mm-hmm. it's tough because a lot of people don't feel like they're listened to. And a lot of people don't engage, right? And I think those things are too kind of connected that's, to each other. That's the big one as well. I mean, like, I think people definitely in the digital age as well really assume that their engagement is, you know, for lack of a better term, just complaining. I'm going to use a bad word. I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, complaining about on Facebook or social mm. media about things yeah. or sharing articles. And I, I don't think that has any impact whatsoever because it's an echo chamber right i mean like you're just talking to your friends who probably agree with a lot of your things and then you're like everybody i know disagrees with this it's like well Mm -hmm. i mean i do think there's something to be said for being vocal about the things that you care about on social media you know that if you look at the effectiveness of of trump on social media a big part of the reason that he's president now is because uh, a pretty one-sided social media dominance and some of that was was bots in russia i mean it's not just people that were doing that but uh i think there that you can't just neglect that space sure uh, but it, it it can't be everything either yeah that's the, that's the it, big, it, yeah, you've it's got to do more step than step one but then you yeah. can always go to the city council and sit and then speak before the city council if you have issues or go with a group of people we did that mm-hmm. with the uh with the parking legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it wasn't parking legislation. It was the parking mandate coming from the mayor's office. Yep. Yep. Um, we went to go to appeal the city council. And I think for the most part, they were in agreement with, with us mm-hmm. too. I mean, that was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's a really good example, right? Like you had a, a situation where a policy change was proposed and people had, you know, serious concerns and they voiced those concerns loudly, but it's not that tough to, um, to, to engage if you put a good faith effort most of the time. Right. Uh, and, you know, some people pay more attention than others. Unfortunately for, for me, because it made our jobs harder, uh, council member Cantrell answered her emails, right? Like she reviewed them. There was no like filter. Mm-hmm. So we would get stuff uh, as her staff where they were like, we need to work on this random issue because she had answered an email like at one o'clock in the morning because somebody <laughs> was complaining about something. And so it's, it's, it's key to her appeal. And I think it's key to the reason why she was elected. Um, it, it, and it wouldn't have taken more than you, you, you see more than four or five complaints about one thing mm-hmm. and then it becomes a thing, yeah. right? You know, these, these, the, the different council offices, I'd say probably the same thing on the state legislative level. You pay attention to what people say. And if something starts to get repeated, it's, it's a big deal. Now it doesn't always need to be repeated. Sometimes, you know, an issue, one issue is a big enough thing by itself by one person that, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it merits, you know, whatever kind of action is being requested. So, yeah. Do you think that access is going to be uh, a little more limited now that um, we've moved on to the mayor's office? It's got to be, yeah. right? I it's mean, it's a bigger job. It's a it's a bigger job, and, and you're serving more folks. And I think it's going to be tough for her because she loves to have open access to folks. But it, you know, it's 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 tough because you're you're mayor for the entire city. 
All right. Well, we are going to take a little break. We're going to hop behind the bar, whip up a drink, and then we will be back in just a minute. So th- bear with us, and we'll we'll see you on the other side. All right. We're going to hop behind the bar and make a, a nice flip. Steve's got something for us today with some delicious Fernet Branca for, from our benevolent sponsors at Infinium Spirits. I'm on. I'm on, guys. I'm behind the bar this time. It's my drink. Yeah, Steve Stern. Right on, y'all. So uh, one thing that I really love, uh, when I first got started uh, out in craft cocktail bartending, and I think this is pretty similar for a lot of people, is when they learn of the world of craft and fancy cocktails, they love egg white drinks. Um, it's like a proper sour is supposed to have egg whites inside of it, and you know you kind of obsess over that a little bit. Uh, I remember there was a drink that was taught to me uh, by Kirk Estopinal, uh from over at Cure, uh, back in the day, because I was a big fan of Chinar, and he made me a uh, Chinar Flip, which was really delicious. And I had never, I mean, I'd heard of flips before just from like reading books and things like that, but it involved using the whole egg inside of a drink instead of just an egg white. So it was kind of intriguing to me. Uh, sounded a little gross. I think that sounds kind of gross <laughs> to people to begin with, but uh, they're really dish- uh, delicious, uh, really great textural drinks. I don't think they fly too well in New Orleans for the most part because uh, uh, they are a little on the heavy side uh so i think that a little bit of cooler weather really kind of makes a drink like that shine and yeah uh, a lot of a lot of the traditional whole egg cocktails like your your eggnog essentially mm-hmm. um they're associated with cold right. weather and we're just so lucky this week to have a little bit of a cold snap here in new orleans i think this is the coldest it's been in probably three or four years and it's been pretty nice uh anywho so let's uh jump in with this drink uh it's really really super simple so uh feel free to follow along at home uh we're gonna start <laughs> off with one ounce of uh, Fernet Branca uh, from the Infinium portfolio, our benevolent sponsors, as Cole like to say, one ounce. What about these? The, like a Chino or Fernet? What about the having something that bitter works in the context of a flip, which is usually sort of like a sweeter, like rich, creamy kind of an eggnog flavor type drink? So, what's really great about using these more potent uh, herb forward liqueurs and everything like that is that when you put a whole egg inside of it, you need something that can kind of punch through like all that flavor as well, or else like you know that egg and that creaminess is really going to dominate the drink. So, we're kind of taking the idea of what a flip is, and we're like really putting the spirit more to the forefront of anything else. All right. So our next ingredient in this cocktail is going to be one ounce of, of Carpano Antica. Mm-hmm. Carpano Antica Vermouth. Sweet Vermouth. Uh, one of my favorite vermouths. Um, not uh, always for every single cocktail, but for specific cocktails is absolutely fantastic. And by itself, there's a really nice cola note to it that I've always really enjoyed about this vermouth. I really like the the, the heavy vanilla notes in, in Carpano Antica specifically. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, which and especially in the context of a of a of a of a flip, I think that'll that'll stand up right real well. So um, I think there's enough uh, sugar that's going to be between those two. So we're actually not going to add any sweetener. If you try this drink and you're like, you know what, I could use a little bit sweeter. Uh, a half an ounce, quarter an ounce of simple syrup will give that that uh, what you're looking for. But for me personally, this definitely hits the flavor that I want. We're going to add our whole egg, which we've pre-cracked into the shaker tin. Now, with any drink that you are making that uses egg whites or eggs, uh, traditionally you do a dry shake. Um, there's a couple different methods now that are incorporated in making drinks with eggs or egg whites, uh, reverse shakes and things like that. But I'm a traditionalist. I think a dry shake and then adding ice and doing a real shake is perfectly fine. So a quick dry shake. Make sure... Uh, you know, if it's your first time shaking, you want to shake the crap out of this drink because you really want to incorporate all of the ingredients together. So shake it as hard as you can and then shake it harder. 
<laughs> I I try to warn people if you're doing a dry shake, one of the reasons that uh, Shakerton's work is that ice makes them contract. So they they stick together when you put ice in them. But if you're doing a dry shake without ice, they don't naturally stick together as well. So you really got to you can wrap a wrap a bar rag around the seam or just hold it real tight. But they they tend to come apart if you're not careful when you're doing the dry shake. All right. Now we're going to add our ice into the shaker. And incorporate this back together. Also, just shake as hard as you possibly can here. How do you feel about uh, people who use like a whisk ball or take the the screen off of uh, a Hawthorne strainer and put that in to help get a little extra action? Uh, my honest opinion is uh, working at my other bar, which is a tiki bar. We use blenders to do that. <laughs> so, uh, I know uh, some people think that's a sin, but we made uh, some Ramos Gin Fizzes the other day, and it took 10 seconds, and they were the best Ramos Gin Fizzes I've ever had. So hmm. I think use whatever technology you have to a point. Um, I think the best thing for any bartender, home mixologist, uh, professional mixologist, if you will, too, <laughs> is experiment with what you do and then adopt the methods that you think are best. Um, if if you think it literally comes out better by adding a spring into it, use a spring, you know, but don't just do it because somebody told you to try it out first and then use what you think is the best method. Hmm. Um, this drink, you can uh, serve it a couple different ways. It's honestly uh, because it's so rich, it can hold up in a lot of different containers. We're going to serve this up so we can really appreciate the Capano and the Fernet inside of it. It would be lovely on the rocks as well if you're looking for a longer drink. So rich. Oh, absolutely. Nice and thick and creamy. I love the head. And it'll be a really nice color contrast on this drink as well. Uh, There'll be a nice thick foam that's on the top. And then a really nice uh, differentiation between the two layers. Mm -hmm. And every time you take a sip, you get that foam that's kind of been infused with those uh, flavors in there. But uh, don't expect the same kind of foam if you're using a whole egg that you would get if you're just using an egg white. Because the fats from the yolk can really kind of cut that out. So it's more, it's not like a airy foam like you'd get in a Ramus where you're just using the egg white. It's more of like a, a, a kind of a dense foam layer on top. It's like a mousse. Yeah. yeah. All right, and we're going to finish this drink off. Uh, there's going to be an orange twist that we're going to express the oils lightly on top and then top the whole thing off with some uh, nutmeg, some freshly grated nutmeg, which is the only way to do it. Don't use powdered nutmeg. Freshly grated nutmeg. It's a luxury that we get to uh, appreciate in the modern <laughs> world. All righty, we're going to call this libation, flipping the script, and uh, we're going to take this out to the patio and knock out the rest of our fantastic episode. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Well, now that we're back, we've got our drinks in front of us. We are joined by a surprise extra guest today. Uh, we've Our friend Derek Freeman is with us. You may know Derek from the music at the beginning and end of this podcast, uh, but he's in uh, a whole bunch of bands around town. He's front for some. He's a drummer. He's an actor, and he's he's a good friend of ours. Uh, say hey, Derek. What's up, people? You all, oh, also, you can hear him do the New Orleans Music Show on WWOZ on Wednesdays. That's right. Wednesdays 11 to 2. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is, a, this, is, this is where we wanted to. We've been wanting to have Derek on the show for, I don't know, since we started this show. Uh, but I remember the first time we were like, hey, Derek, you want to come on the show? He's like, what are we talking about? He's like, oh, we're going to talk about music. He says, no, I don't want to talk about music. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we're and talking it, about local politics. Yeah, I know we were thinking about talking about football, but I don't want to jinx this Saint season. No, so no, no, like, no, let's yeah, not, no, we're, we're not talking about that. We're good on that right now. We'll talk about it after. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> all, we're not all after stuff. Right on. When we go back into the bar. Cool, mm. awesome. So, yeah. Derek, uh, what you missed in the first half of the show um, is that we're uh, talking about uh, politics in New Orleans for the most part. Uh, John is the chief of staff for Mayor Elect Latoya Cantrell, 
And uh, we covered a couple topics that um, uh, definitely concern you as well. And I wouldn't mind just some hot takes real quick on on certain things. Uh, so we did cover the smoking ban was something that we did talk about. So as a musician, uh, what what was your – you were in town for when the smoking ban happened, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, many years before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and after. Uh, and, and as someone whose stage name is Mr. Smoker. Yeah, but, you know, I'm that, that that's very true. Um but I don't smoke um, nicotine products, you know, nor do I enjoy them. And I actually got the name, you know, the smells you smell behind you. I, I got the name from being um, being an expert on the grill and the smoker. And mm. the double meaning just happens to make sense for obvious reasons. <laughs> but, um, no, the smoking ban was huge uh, health-wise, you know, like, especially, especially a place like Vaughn's. Mm which I played for years, and it's like, you know, especially a place like Vaughn's, which I played for years, and, you know, if you ever, if you ever been in that place, it's a box, you know, so everybody's on top of you, which is awesome for the energy and the, and the vibe of the room, but, like, back when people smoked cigarettes, it was, like, unbelievable, like, strip, yeah. strip buck naked at the door, because you don't want to bring anything in the house. It's right like, on. That's how much you just be inundated with smoke. Cool. Uh, uh, other musicians that you've worked with, uh, did you ever see that counterpoint at all where they were just like, you know, it's like the smoke band's terrible? Like, No, even the musicians who smoke yeah. like the smoke band. Okay. Because it, it, ironically, it's, you know, them smoking is part of, you know, their own routine or their mm-hmm. their nervousness or anxiousness. You know, musicians have all kind of quirks, as y'all know. Right so, um, but being inundated with the smoke, they ain't like it either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so smoking that, your cigarette is different than smoking other people's exactly. cigarettes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Cool. How about uh, Charity Hospital? Any any hot take? That was another issue that we touched on a little bit, the, the different relationship the city has with Big Charity versus what it has now with the University Medical Center. Uh, you, you live in this neighborhood, so you've been in the, the umbrella or sort of in the shadow of that development. Any any? This neighborhood used to be you? called jail, by the way. If you look at old maps, <laughs> I'm serious. This neighborhood was literally called jail. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is a point of interest. Um, the charity, I mean, the actual building itself is an eyesore. You know, it's a classic building. I wish they would do something do with something it. Do something with it. Yeah. yeah is there mean, st- John, you might know better than the rest of us. Is there mm-hmm. still talk about turning that into the new city hall? I think that would be a beautiful city hall. That would be kind of awesome. So um, the, the latest that I've heard of, about it, they actually just recently started the process again of kind of evaluating what that building could be used for as far as i know city hall is no longer on the table um for that option it, it's a really complicated situation because this the city doesn't own the property right the state does mm-hmm. and so who does what with it is complicated because you're in the city of new orleans but the building isn't technically owned by the city and so what what could be there what wouldn't be theirs is still kind of an open question and and, and you know i've heard tons of things medical facility type stuff um you know, apartment and condo type of situations, the city hall, uh, you know, court function, you know, it's like a million square feet, which is insane for me to say out loud as a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Um, you, you, know, you mean that literally? It's a million it's square feet? It's literally a million square feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that's, that's a like thing. A, that's like a developer's dream. Actually. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> or a nightmare. I mean, um, if nobody's been in there for well, such a long time. Nightmares are also dreams, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's been great having Derek Freeman on the podcast. <laughs> We're looking for a new theme song, by the way. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Let's start that over again. Brutal. Wow. <laughs> Seriously. I'll drink some more of my drink. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, one of the things that um, I think that LaToya has had a um, 
And we, and we agreed not to talk about the specifics of any of the recent uh, things that came up during the campaign. Um, but there were some there were some ethics concerns that were raised when she was running for city council. And there was some ethics concerns that were raised when she was running for mayor. And she was able to to shrug them off in a way that I think just from a political perspective is very impressive. And a lot we, we were ch- chatting a little bit about this before we uh, we started recording. And we were, I, I was sort of framing it as as a bit of a race thing, which I which John quickly schooled me on. In that, uh, I mean, growing up in D.C., living in New Orleans, see people like uh, Marion Barry, people like Bill Jefferson, um, a lot of politicians who were able to couch it as this us versus them. They're out to get us, you know. The, and the 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 criminalization of, of of black people in America that 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 narrative makes sense. There, people probably were out to get a lot of black politicians in a way. Uh, but John was telling me that that it's really any sort of transition to a new culture in politics that. The, the us versus them isn't just a black thing. That that I mean, I was observing that Donald Trump uses a very similar language. But you can talk about you know about Edwin Edwards. You can talk about politicians and coming up the the Tammany Hall in New York, politicians in Boston. There's no way restricted to race, but it's mm-hmm. definitely this us versus them narrative. Mm-hmm. But Latoya never used that. She was never about that sort of divisiveness. And I was I'm curious if if you can speak at all to the way that she avoided that common reaction to those types of allegations. Sure. So, and again, I'm biased, right? Because I work for her. Um, but she's a very inclusive, collaborative person, right? And so us versus them doesn't work if that's your, your governing philosophy. If you're, if you're trying to make sure that you serve everybody, even the folks that don't, don't vote for you, then, then you, you can't run your campaign in a way that doesn't reflect that either, right? Um, it, it, it's just been a benefit of working for her. You see folks from all over the place that, that support her and, and people who often don't agree on a lot of the individual situations will both have reasons why they're, they're a fan of, of her. And, and again, I think it's being intentionally inclusive, intentionally collaborative and making sure that, you know, we, we don't create as many of these kind of zero sum, I win, you lose type of situations. It's just, it's key to who she is. And I think it's part of being a community organizer. You, you do not do that autocratically. It's not like a, I'm going to tell you what to do. And that's why this thing's going to happen. You have to get the group involved. You have to organize the community in order for action to occur. And, and so it, it just creates a different philosophy on things. Can we, can we talk about, um, New Orleans East? As far as her her plans for that, yeah, no, Cause, cause, to... well, because you know, there's so many misconceptions about the East. I mean, uh-huh. it is a middle class neighborhood, yeah, you know, and and actually, the grid out there is actually the one that's up to code. Mm. It's weird, like the only part of the city that like actually functions properly is the part that's like desolate and unforgotten. So we should figure that out, Cindy. Going back to the diversity point, the new council is is is, is something to be that we should acknowledge. I mean, the fact that there's three blacks, two, three, I mean, Helena Moreno is Mexican, so, which is good. And then, uh, <laughs> just saying, but Cindy Woo, Wynn. Not that there's anything wrong with no, that. No, 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 I'm just saying, I, I was counting her as white, but not yeah. really, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. I'm just saying, it, it and uh, Cindy Wynn being the Vietnamese, I'm just saying it, rep- it actually represents is, is, the, is the city. Is the and, first and, ever uh, yes. Vietnamese council person? Yes, she mm-hmm. is. That's, and the point is, yeah. like, her, I mean... Dude, I lived in the ninth ward during the, during the, the, the Johnny Jones era, and the, like, it, it, you know, like that part of the city. I mean, thank God for Cindy Wynn. I hope 
I'm, I got faith in her. But New Orleans East, it's got to be on the come up. You know what I mean? Like, 100%. I, I personally think the airport should be out there. Like, you know, I have all. That's just what I'm thinking. You know so, what I'm saying? Just, just so, like I said, it's the most structurally sound part of the city, ironically. So, so in the, I think there's a lot to, to be said for the East. I think it, it's interesting because some people have these kind of misconceptions of it, kind of to your point. Yeah. But you do. You have – it was – before the storm, it was a solid middle-class community in the vast majority of it. And, and you still have a lot of that there right now, right now. And it's a community that feels ignored. And unfortunately, we have – Several of those, but the East is one of the best examples of a community that really does feel like uh, they don't get the services that that they deserve at the same rate that other places do. Um, and and it, 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 it's actually reflective of a different point that I'd get to later. But let me get kind of specific as far as some of the things that we want to do. So one of the things that 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 Latoya wants to have is a citywide development plan. So you have neighborhood specific hmm. um, concerns as it relates to what do we need here, right? So when you hear People in the Lower Ninth Ward talk about we don't have a grocery store. I got to go to St. Bernard Parish for that, right? Or um, uh, people in New Orleans East who say all we got are dollar stores. Why can't we get some actual more retail? Like having a, a, a real conversation about what incentives should be in place, what is needed in this area, what are what is unique to this part of town versus other places is really relevant, right? And some of it too is is conversations around uh, blight remediation. I think New Orleans East is is really a good. Uh, place for one of the the big aspects of uh, Latoya's housing plan stuff, which is we can do some some first time home ownership in that area, create more homeowners in some of the vacant properties that that are there right now that are single family homes that are actually perfect places to do some of that, and then also some services. Right, one of the things that Latoya said multiple times is she wants to set up a satellite office of city services, um, both in New Orleans East and, and also in Algiers on the West Bank. Because they shouldn't, the people who live there shouldn't have to come all the way to the city to do some basic stuff that if they can go, you know, across the street or two minutes over to, to a place to do some of these kind of basic services. And granted, some of that stuff, if it isn't already, uh, needs to be digitized and so you can do it from the, oh, uh, amen. You know, to, <laughs> Absolutely. But, but you also have you know, older residents who want to talk to a person and, and they should be able to do that without having to go across the city to do it. So there's, a, there's a lot. To be said, some of it big and some of it small. So, paying attention to people isn't always about hard to do stuff. There's some kind of like basic things that if we put in place and we renew people's faith in their in their ability to be paid attention to as part of the the city of New Orleans, I think are big. Um, but yeah, there's there's so much potential to do better by the residents of New Orleans East, and, I, and I'm excited about it. And I know that that Latoya is too. Right on. And you cool. said you wanted to expound upon a point, too. Which yeah. Is that? So one of the big issues I think that we have in the city, and it's really kind of an existential issue, is that when looking at where we are now versus where we were from the storm, a lot of people can see kind of like a 10,000-foot view of progress being made, but on an individual level don't believe that their lives are necessarily better. Mm-hmm. So they feel like other people have done well and that they specifically have not done well, right? And it... It, what it's done is kind of fragmented us as as a people, and it makes it really difficult to make some of the hard decisions that we know we're going to have to make in order for the city to get better, right? right? Like, we're going to have to do something with the sewage and water board for it to work better than it does right now. We're going to have to do something with basic stormwater management issues and how we change that and how the city looks at it. We need more people in the city. So how do we get more people without kicking the people we have here out? How do we take better care of our cultural producers? All these things. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Do we need more people, though? See, yeah. that's that's another point I want to make. Yeah. Is that, um, like, you? well, you're a permanent resident because you have a house. Are you a permanent resident? 
Well, Louisiana. I'm just asking. Permanent, right? I'm a Louisiana ID. Okay, but I mean, a lot of people of your ilk don't. See what I'm saying? Yeah, it's no, like, I've, I've lived here for 15 years. See, that's my point. There's yeah. hundreds of thousands of people here mm-hmm. who aren't residents. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, well, we know from a national standpoint, the Census Bureau doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah, they true. claim there's 220,000 people. Yeah. There's 220,000 people here. And we know there's like 700, 800,000 people here. I'm just saying, if you count the, the film industry, the students, you know, the people who haven't been students for 10 years who still are residents of wherever they're from. You know what I'm saying? So that it, it hurts the infrastructure because we're not getting the, the funding. You know mm-hmm, what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we need to find out how many people are really here mm-hmm. and figure out a way to get funded for that. So how do we, how do we encourage, you know, people who want to stay in New Orleans to become residents. You know what I'm saying? Well, like There needs to be incentives to make people want to give up their Texas ID or their Jersey ID. Affordable or, housing, so they can pay job taxes opportunities. Here. You know what I'm saying? That's the problem. Yeah. It's like yeah. there's more than half the people who live here who don't pay taxes here. You know so there's no way no, we, can, I, we can grow from that. I think I think it's a, it's a good point. You have kind of a transient population. And when I mean that, you know, folks who are just here for a little bit of time, right? Um, but, again, there's – there are resource issues and then there's attention stuff, right? Like right. making people feel like they're really a part of the city um, doesn't always take a lot of money, you know? Right. Um, but I do think that even when, when you account for the transient population of folks who might just be here for a little while and then leave, um, we still have, you can only raise but so much money. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about huh? people who choose to stay. Yeah. But just long aren't term. Res- long term, but yeah. still aren't residents. Yeah. Well, so. Which, you know, slightly different from what you're. But even, but even in relation to that, right? Yeah. Because where the city gets its revenue from, right? We, we mostly get our revenue from property taxes and, and sales taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't get, New Orleans doesn't have a specific income tax piece, which is relevant because that would be spe- specific related to your residency, right? Okay. That's a state, that's more of a state level thing. And the reason why, why I bring that up is, so for instance, a city like Philly has an, an as an income tax. So if you are a resident or you do work in, in, in Philly, then the city gets a cut. New Orleans isn't that way. So you can be from New York. You're not paying a different sales tax here than you were somewhere else. You could be from anywhere else. If you're a renter, you're paying the sales ta- the property taxes for that property, even though the owner might be from here, right? right. So I, I actually think when it comes to the residency piece, I think it's relevant to stuff like when you talked about the census piece because some of the federal resources are affected by that. Yeah. Um, you potentially have some state re- uh, resources that could be uh, affected by that when you come to like who pays money for their for their license plates, right? Like registering your car in, in, in the state. But a lot of that's like state and federal pieces. When it's local, when it's specific to the city, who does business here and who buys stuff here um, and who who lives here are actually more important than than from from a purely revenue perspective because there's a whole bunch of cultural emotional issues related to do you identify as a New Orleanian or not? Right. That's a separate piece. <laughs> but when it comes to but when it comes to the actual income of the city, it's it's less it's it's less relevant as far as your official residency because the money that you're spending and the way that we tax that money isn't focused on your residence. Gotcha. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, that's. Nice take. I like that. <laughs> uh, cool. So um, I, I'd be interested to see, like, we've got a nice swath here. We've got a business owner. We've got a professional musician, jack of all trades, Derek, longtime residence as well, um, and a 
I don't know, some miscreant bartender. (laughs) (laughs) Mover and shaker, we'll go with that for the most part. So uh, what are things that we are looking forward to with the new administration coming through? uh, What are things that we would love to see kind of like, you know, concentrated on? And also, John, I'd love to see your perspective of things that are like immediate uh, things on the docket for the administration as well to say, like, Mm -hmm. these are what we want to concentrate coming out of the gate. Let's go ahead and start with you, Cole. I think that there is a there's I've seen some uh, movement. There's an organization I can't remember the name of it right now, and I feel bad about that. But they're they're moving for uh, fair treatment for service industry workers. So be, not ha- not forcing people to work doubles, uh, making sure people have their schedules in advance, and mm-hmm. codifying that. A lot of cities have moved in that direction, but I think cr- having that conversation. And I don't I don't necessarily know that we need to go all the way. For service industry workers from the like $2 and change minimum wage that we have now all the way. It's like, I don't know if $15 minimum wage is right for this municipality, but I think maybe a $5. Like, that yeah. we could make a big difference with a couple of, and even as a business owner, I recognize like I, we, we do a, we do a ship pay here, but it averages out to more than $5 an hour. So I wouldn't be hurting myself yeah. by doing that. But I think that there should be a baseline of treatment for service industry people. And I think because so many of them are transient, because so many of them, they keep odd hours, they're not usually politically engaged. They tend to be underrepresented in the system. Mm-hmm. But I think we should, we should be focused as much as, I mean, maybe that's just because that's where I am, but mm-hmm. I think we should be focusing more on them, especially because it's such a large part of the city's workforce, mm-hmm. of the economy of the city is service-oriented. So I think mm-hmm. being able to make sure those people are, are treated fairly or paid fairly uh, is, is important to me, at least. And, and, I hope and the one thing I would just glom on to that, it's, it's not just a huge industry. It's also one that the city directly invests in, mm-hmm. right? So tax revenue goes to support the hospitality industry and the service industry in the city. And so if that's happening, I definitely think that it's 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 a – it's important for the city to be aware of, well, how does that affect our workers? Because you have a little more skin to the game as, as folks who directly invest in that, making sure that it's benefiting the people whose jobs are employed in that, in that system. So I, I think it's a really good point. It's a great springboard too. When we're talking about, you know, permanent residents, longtime residents, mm-hmm. however we want to codify it, because oh. so many people will move to the city and, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to start off with a service industry. They need job, incentives but, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. you can't, you know, if you can't build your roots, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I'm going to go on and move on to my next place. I mean, that's part of that transient lifestyle. Mm-hmm. All right, Derek, what you got for us? What is what is what is expect not expectations, but things that you would like to see? Well, interestingly enough, like as a musician, artist, like we also live paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. but don't really have the choice to leave. You know what I'm saying? Right. Once, once you've been here and put in the work and you become a local celebrity or whatever, then it's like. You have to maintain this status. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So then the optics become a problem. So like mm-hmm. if, if, if I don't have a string of gigs that pay me, I mean, I could go wash dishes or wait tables, but how does that look for my overall brand? You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that is a problem. So mm-hmm. there needs to be, there's a lot, um, you know, um, you, you know, we travel like the European model, the Canadian model, the Japanese model of like the support system mm-hmm. for, for, you know, musicians, like mm-hmm. especially if like if you can prove from, just the parking alone. Like, mm-hmm. like I had to spend so much money on parking, parking tickets, mm-hmm. you know, the zoning is like, like there's six different parking zones just on Frenchman Street. So as somebody who has to like spend four days a week on that street, unfortunately, like, you know, how do, how do I maneuver like unloading, loading mm-hmm. without, you know, playing the game? It's, it's too much. And, 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 and at the end of the year, cause you know, when I do my taxes, it's a big percentage of, of, of my money. Right. And, and also, 
you know, there's just no support system, like I mm-hmm. said. Like, and I don't have the option. You know, I can't just, like, move to Atlanta and just take over the Atlanta yeah. music scene. No. And move yeah. to, you know, like, just, I'm here. Steve mm-hmm. and I could probably move to pretty much any city in the yeah, country exactly. to get a bartending job. Yeah. And it would be, it's still very daunting, though, as well, it's too. Daunting, it's like, you know, but, if, yeah. when you, but, when you've invested so much of your personal resources into, like, a place as well, too. Like, and I, my, my, sure. a lot of my personal identity as a bartender is tied to being a New Orleans bartender. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. even if I go someplace else. I, I will always be a New Orleans bartender someplace. Else. But I, I but my point is that I don't think that there's the same. You can't really effectively be a full time working musician in other cities. Yeah, I I much would, much harder. Like maybe maybe like Nashville. You can't like really even be one here cities. now though. That's my yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're all getting priced yeah. out. Like you know, mm-hmm. my wife works in real estate. Like if we if we don't have her income to support us, I would. Who knows where? I, mm-hmm. Like I said, mm-hmm. I mean. I'm educated, so I have the option to go teach. And so, you know, it's not like I will be desolate if it, if it came to that, but I'm it's just telling you exactly what you and there's a lot too, of guys. Right? There's a lot of guys that there's a lot of guys that aren't going to be able to afford, be able to afford here. Yeah. And the musicians that are going to be able to afford to stay here aren't going to be representative of the scene. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. going to change the dynamics, going to change what New Orleans music is. So like, I'm like a soldier to prevent that from <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we got to have some support. Right. Sure. Yeah. From the local level. Yeah. We have to. No, completely. So uh, yeah. for me, I mean, I'm just affordable housing. We've had some mm-hmm. people from the show come in and talk Same about it as well, too. Same and thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right now. And, and that's for musicians. That's for like anybody in the service industry as well. It's just, mm-hmm. um, and John, you've got a background in this, which is great to hear that, like, you know, we've got, we've got a member of the team on board right, right. now. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, ever since Katrina, I used to, I used to spend $200 a month in rents in a place behind Whole Foods before Katrina mm-hmm. uh, for a three bedroom, two bathroom shotgun. Yeah. And now, it's like I my roommates now moving out pretty soon and like you know caught me a little bit off guard I go on a Craigslist to try and find like any place to live and either I'm living in a you know crappy place for like $800 a month or I'm paying $1,100 $1, a month for a single bedroom place mm-hmm. it's like it's just with the jobs that are available right now in the city mm-hmm. you know what the income average income level is like who can afford that you know yeah. like no. single people especially Trust fund kids I can do that. <laughs> well, with, with guitars. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what 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 are you what are you working on? There there are a lot of so all of this stuff is is completely on point, and and some of the biggest concerns that we have in relation to to the overall health of the city, right? Um, our housing costs are not relevant to um, the amount of money people make here. So so there there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff to even kind of go into with this, but. One of the things is we don't show nearly enough love to our cultural producers. Like we love talking about how we're a city that has music mm-hmm. and we don't care, take care of our people right. at all. You and could, you could go to any hotel room downtown and see my, I'll be, I'll be in that video. You know what I mean? Like yeah. things yeah. to go see and it's like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Like my lights might get cut off tomorrow too. So we had an excellent point from, uh, when Macna was on our show mm-hmm. and, uh, there's, uh, there are certain people who equate music with noise they've started just like calling like the music that is being made in the city is noise that's like horrible it's just like mm-hmm. that that trying to relate those things together it's just yeah yeah and, and in relation to stuff like you know macno was big about the sound ordinance when that was you know a topic of conversation and likely we'll come back but look before before kind of get into that we we need to do better by again and i keep i use this terminology because it's, it's it's terminology that the mayor elect uses but our cultural producers so obviously that means our musicians but it also means our service industry workers. It also means our cooks and our chefs and, and those folks. It also means our Mardi Gras Indians and, you know, our social clubs. And there's a lot we can do for people and we don't focus our resources there yet. We, we spend a lot of city dollars on things like marketing and branding at a high level, mm-hmm. but we need to, you know, democratize that money and make sure that people at the ground level who are the day to day folks 
who who work in the industries that we're proud of and that we that we try to export and show and, and do all that stuff are actually getting the benefits of, of that. So that's big. But but the housing issue again is 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 a, an existential issue in the city of New Orleans, and there are three things that we really want to work on um, in relation to that. One, we want to incentivize the um, preservation of affordable housing, and what I mean by that is you, you might not a place right now that's a, a, a two bedroom for eight hundred bucks a month, which is easier said than done to find, and I you know, but there there are neighborhoods that are. are what some people would say on the come up, right? But right now the, the rent in, in those places is affordable. They're not subsidized in any kind of way. The landlord isn't subsidized and the person who, who rents that place isn't. But trying to keep those places at their rental levels, if not a little bit lower, um, is a more efficient way to, um, keep the affordable rents where they are than just building a new unit, right? Like I could spit, I could give somebody $30,000 to maintain their rent. Or I could spend three hundred thousand dollars to build a brand new place, and where you can build those places are limited, and who can do that work is limited. Now we need to do both, but what people don't talk about nearly as much is the preservation of existing housing because we have places like San Francisco and New York and other cities that actually spend a lot of resources on building new affordable housing. The problem is they're never going to build as much as they're losing, mm-hmm. so you got to focus on keeping what you got because. If you're in a market where people are coming, then you're going to build new stuff no matter what. But you got to keep the affordable housing where it is. It's kind of like the steak versus the sizzle, right? It's not sexy to say, okay, that, that guy charges 600 bucks a month. We're going to make sure that he's, he's still charging something like 600 bucks a month in 10 years versus building a brand new beautiful building, right? But we have to do that piece. So incentivizing existing uh, affordabilities is one of the big things and maintaining existing affordability is is a huge piece of it. One of the other things we need to do is, is is take a better do a better job of leveraging existing resources, right? So there New Orleans because it was a cheap place to live so long, it took a while for it to get on the forefront of a lot of the affordable housing financing structures that other places have used for years, right? And because you had a large you had a large part of our affordable housing that that was um, you know, publicly owned property that meant you didn't have developers building new stuff. So there are things like the 4% affordable housing tax credit. So there are two different types of tax credits. We don't have enough time or interest in, in breaking that down, but there's one in the city that we don't use very well, right? So taking that with stuff, something like the historic housing tax credit and then maybe some public incentive piece too, you could start building more housing than we have right now. And then the other piece, which is also tied very much to equity, um, is incentivizing first-time home ownership and first-time family home ownership for folks, right? So sometimes when we talk about first-time homeowners, you might only make $35,000, but if you're coming from a middle or upper middle-class family, they can spot you the money for the down payment for a place. Whereas if you're in a generational issue where you've never had um, a, a homeowner in your in your family, then you can't take advantage of the equity of previous generations, which also gets into some of the multi-generational discrimination stuff. Like if your family was redlined, if your grandparents were redlined and they never owned a home, then that means they couldn't help your parents own a home or start a business, which means they can't help you. So you you might as a family be making $85,000 and be more uh, resource poor or asset poor than somebody who's just right fresh out of college making $25,000, $30,000. You can try to correct for some of those issues with incentivizing home ownership. Also, the folks who are more interested in some of our neighborhoods that aren't in the, the middle of the city, 
would be, I think, the folks who would be really interested in, in first-time ownership in places. Which right? brings us back to New Orleans East. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bam. Yeah. Right? I New mean, Orleans East. Right there, yeah. Algiers. I mean, we're getting yeah. to a point right now with areas like Gentilly where the rents are, are going up and the, and the housing costs are going up that you couldn't even say. Gentilly is going to be Lakeview in a couple of years. Watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, that's, that's, that's already happening. happening. It's already happening. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, taking advantage of that stuff for first-time home ownership incentives in, in those places. So you, you really, you, you hit it in multiple places, right? You have, you got to straight up build stuff for some folks because they're not going to be able to even pay their, their like light bill, right? So at super low income areas, you need to just straight up build new housing for the lower middle income folks. You, you need just to keep rents where they are so that they're not going up at exponential rates. And then for, for people who are of the means to be able to do it, creating first-time home ownership incentives. And so if we can do all of that stuff mm-hmm. and, and also make sure that our development framework is consistent so that the, the market rate stuff is happening while we're preserving the stuff for affordable folks, then we'll create an environment that's sustainable by people. So is there an appointee to – like? it feels like this is like – Sure. Specific so, so to the, one person, like this. The, the, so. There is there are a lot of pieces that that are involved in. It. There there are ways to do some of this work right now um, through city processes. A lot of them are really complicated, and it would be better if we could get like some have more a czar, like a housing czar or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so I mean, yeah, to yeah, be, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, no, 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 no. Yeah. But I laugh, but but it, you're not off. I think right, right. you know having somebody to coordinate it would be great. But one of the things that we need to do, we need to work with our state delegation to get a little bit more flexibility and authority to do what we really want with our housing and our housing incentives. So that's going to be a big part of working with the legislature this year. So hopefully we can get some stuff passed in May and then take it to the voters too, right? Because what we're talking about is using property tax incentives for affordable housing, right? And so we got to get everybody involved in that conversation. People talk about and complain about affordable housing a lot, but when you get a solution, are people prepared to invest in that solution or not? And I'm not talking about creating increasing people's taxes right now. I'm talking about being more flexible and innovative with what we use right now. So perfect. All righty, y'all. I feel like we could keep going on for a long period of time, but I think we've <laughs> yeah, reached pretty much the end of the, the show at this point, here, right? It's yeah. like, yeah. Got an hour. So right on. So uh yeah, well we like to give our, our guests the opportunity to to leave a parting shot. So just say this is who I am, uh this is where you can find me, uh and just any any last thoughts that you want to give to uh to our to our dozens of listeners uh and john what well, I, I have a question Wh- when are you gonna run <laughs> <laughs> i'm just trying not to get fired cole like you know can i keep my job let me keep my job before i try to run well, pretty new ones. your job's got a time limit the, your, yeah your, no, your city true. council person's gonna have a different job in five months it's true it's true so uh so i'm actually uh, i'm currently still the chief of staff for for Marilette Cantrell on the council side but i'm gonna be working full-time on transition come uh january and then we'll just see what happens with the administration. Awesome. Right. Uh, so uh, why don't you go ahead and reindu- reintroduce yourself, John. Also, yeah. um, I would love if you'd be able to tell our listeners uh, who hear this and they're like, how can I get more involved? How can they reach out to uh, you, anybody else, yeah. and get involved? Great. So uh, my name is John Puccio. Um, uh, thank you all again for, for having me on. I, I work for LaToya Cantrell. I mean, my parting shot would be my boss is dope. I think she's going to be a great <laughs> mayor. Um, I'm really excited to see what she can do for the city. Um, for folks who, who are uh, interested in getting, um, you know, more involved with politics in, in the city, we're going to need your help as we build this transition. Um, we're, we're currently building a transition website as we speak. Um, if you're interested in volunteering or working for either the transition side or the, the new administration, um, send something to resumes at LatoyaCantrell.com. 
Um, we will d- certainly review that stuff. And then if you're just interested in overall transition stuff, uh, I'll give you my number, 658-1028. Uh, no, I should remember that off the top of my head. 658-1028 <laughs> or 658-1020 for the office line. Um, you know, we're currently you know, receiving requests in relation to folks who are interested in, in, in being involved. And as we transition full-time, to the transition side of things, we're going to have a website and a phone number and all that other kind of stuff. But we're going to need this for the city to be successful. Everybody's going to have to be involved, and um, we're excited to try and make that happen. Right on. And Derek, we're definitely going to have you back on the show for a longer segment, I'm sure. But why don't you go ahead and let our audience uh, remind them who you are, mm-hmm. and uh, if they want a little taste of you, where can they find you? Um, Derek Freeman, aka Derek Smoker, across all social platforms or SoulBrassBand.com. We're available for all, you know. <clears throat> election parties and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> Just if anybody's listening. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's just, just put that out there. But um, and uh, seriously though, um, um, from that standpoint, like, um, for whatever reason, like I have a strong relationship with the musicians clinic, so we we get tapped to do a lot of um, um, charity, political mm-hmm. type, rally type. Um, second lines that would have you so you guys should definitely keep us in mind for that word um, and also just you can find me at 12 mile <laughs> <laughs> fair enough all right well uh, I think we'll just leave it at that my name is T. Cole Newton thanks again everybody for listening Stevie Mata here as always remaining in the shadows of 12 mile limits <laughs> we'll catch you next ninja. time <laughs> oh. all right cheers Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body, you've always been a hottie. I really want to